0: On the 3rd of November, 1640, King Charles convened a parliament against his wishes, bowing to pressure, bowing to the exigencies of the situation. He convened what is known to history as the Long Parliament. Long Parliament because it lasted for 20 years. But uh, Charles himself was not destined to see the end of this parliament. Uh, On the contrary, the long parliament ended by putting him on trial and chopping his head off. Therefore, this was the last parliament that Charles would ever convene in his life. And it opened up an entirely new situation. Here you have the beginning of the English Revolution, uh, really speaking. And it's interesting to note that uh, it comes after a long period of parliamentary struggle you know let lenin explained in an article which i haven't been able to trace perhaps you can help me but i remember that lenin says at one point that the parliamentary struggle the struggle of the reformists if you like to change the existing order always ends up with an intensification of the class struggle and the struggle of course Cannot be settled within Parliament, it's always settled outside the Parliament, on the streets. We've seen that time and again in history. We see it now, even the situation that exists in the United States of America. And that was certainly the case in Britain, as it was in France. The French Revolution also passed through a a period of parliamentarism. The Russian Revolution did not for different reasons, but the English and, and French revolutions did pass. To a phase of parliamentarism, which nevertheless ended up, of course, in a revolutionary situation. And actually, it was the convening of the wrong parliament which uh, which led directly to a revolutionary situation. Uh, how does one explain this uh, paradox, seemingly? Well, of course, this wrong parliament after, after a long period of 11 years of dictatorship, of uh, tyranny, This long parliament aroused enormous hopes and expectations in the masses. It often happens that people's hopes and expectations can be aroused by a parliamentary election. And this was the case, Uh, very much so at this time. Although previously the masses didn't show much interest in in elections because they were, after all, they didn't have the vote. The overwhelming majority of the population did not have the vote. And therefore, the elections were seen correctly just as, as a stitch-up between different uh, elements of the rich, of the privileged, of the ruling class. Yeah, but things were beginning to change. The elections themselves became uh, much more contested than what they had been in the past. New elements were coming forward, which they weren't uh, from the people, but they were closer to, to the people. Let's put it that way, people like Oliver Cromwell himself, although at this stage, he still doesn't play. A notable, a notable role. Huge expectations were aroused by these elections and by the parliament, and therefore the disappointment which followed when the uh, hopes and the expectations of the masses were not uh, were not uh, crowned with triumph, didn't meet, meet with didn't didn't meet their expectations, inevitably was followed by an even greater uh, mood of anger and frustration and disappointment. And that itself is the basis of a revolution which now begins. You see, up until now, and you've noticed in the last few episodes that we've had, uh, I've been describing almost entirely a struggle within Parliament, or rather between Parliament and the King, between two, two uh, layers of the ruling class. That's the uh, case. And this struggle took place within manageable limits, shall we say. From the standpoint of, of the property classes, because this was a struggle between different layers, different elements of the property classes—the the landowning aristocrats that supported the king and the, the rising bourgeoisie—that uh, were struggling for political power. And this arrangement suited both sides, actually, to be to be honest. Although the struggle very often assumed quite a, a sharp uh, character, as we have seen. Nevertheless, it, it remained within certain. Acceptable limits, acceptable, that is to say, to the property classes. And this remains so, it's like a game of chess in which everyone knew the rules. You go so far and no further. You would sometimes sacrifice uh, maybe a, a certain piece or other in order to preserve your position or gain perhaps a couple of spaces or, or whatever. But fundamentally, it remained within the limits of the property owning classes. Now, that all changed. At this point, when the masses began to intervene actively in politics, uh, Trotsky explains that the essence of any revolutionary situation is precisely what? It's precisely the moment when the masses, who don't normally participate in politics, that's the case even today, by the way, most, most people shrug their shoulders when elections take place, and so they don't show much interest, more interested in football and uh, things of that uh, description once the masses begin to actively participate in politics then that is the essence of a revolutionary situation and that's precisely the situation that opened up now if you read the accounts of uh, contemporaries particularly like uh, clarendon edward hyde the uh, earl of clarendon the very acute very uh, intelligent observer a royalist of course he constantly refers they all refer to what you call people of the meaner sort the poor people, the rabble, the men with no shirts, one disgruntled royalist uh, called them. And these people, the men with no shirts, for the first time were taking an, an unusual interest in, in, politi- in poli- politics and in, in the struggle between parliament and the king. The new parliament is uh, uh, assembled in quite an angry mood. The uh, presence of the left wing, you could call them that, the more radical, when they the opposition, the bourgeois opposition to Charles, was now far stronger and was on the point of overwhelming the royalists in the in the house in the lower house, at least in the House of Commons. Uh, the, the king still had considerable base in the upper house, the House of Lords, but the whole balance of forces was, was beginning to shift, and there was a section of the of the opposition, not all of them, some of the more advanced elements, but including uh, Pym was the leading figure, Sir John Eliot had died in prison or he would have been probably the leader but it, it was him that led the uh, led the opposition were at least prepared so we put it this way they were prepared to lean on the masses or even to rouse the masses outside of parliament if necessary in their own interest or in their own self-defense and it became increasingly necessary because uh, very very soon became clear once again the parliament was demanding all kinds of things demanding of course in effect they were trying to take revenge for the 11 years of tyranny which they just had to to suffer they were demanding all kinds of radical changes and the king of course naturally equally naturally was resisting and what very quickly of course things became the, the struggle in parliament became very sharp very acute with the risk with the growing risk that was the perception of many people including the parliamentarians themselves the growing risk that the king would resort to violence, there, were clear, there was clear evidence, clear symptoms of that. He'd done it before. He might do it again, try to dissolve parliament one way or, or, or the other. After all, he himself had said many times, princes are not bound to give account of their actions, but to God alone, not to men, not to parliament, not to anybody. And therefore, the, the, the opposition in parliament, or a section of them, let's be careful, because... increasingly you see divisions opening up also in the opposition, left and right. But the more radical elements were prepared to, to, to appeal to the masses outside of Parliament. And the masses themselves were beginning to mobilize, were beginning to move in quite a radical way. Now, a key role in these events is not generally realized by most people, even today. A key role was played by the masses in London. London was now uh, in a state of of absolute ferment and agitation. The masses were were moving into action in in, in a big way. I've got a a quote here from Hume, who I've quoted before. The capital, he writes, especially being the seat of Parliament, was highly animated with a spirit of mutiny and disaffection. The spirit of mutiny and disaffection couldn't be clearer. Tumults were daily uh, uh, caused. Seditious assemblies uh, encouraged. And every man neglecting his own business was wholly intent on the defense of liberty and religion. Now that's quite an interesting account of the the situation. You see, London, of course, being the capital city, was also a a center in every sense. a, A cultural center, a political center, a religious center, a center of trade. A centre of wealth. Yes, there was colossal wealth. Very wealthy people lived in uh, in London. There was a, a legend, uh, an old legend, that the streets of London were paved with gold. Well, they weren't exactly paved with gold; they were paved with far more unpleasant things. But nevertheless, they, they were yes, they were very wealthy people. Yes, but alongside these, very near to these houses, these of the wealthy, the colossal mansions of the rich, was a whole world of darkness. Ignorance, filth, and poverty, and degradation. The, the world of the masses, the world in which most people were forced to, uh, to, to live. London's population may have increased, I think, eightfold between uh, 1550 and 1650. And it acted as a magnet attracting all the unemployed and poor people suffering from the convulsions of uh, the movement towards capitalism, the disintegration of feudalism, which I've dealt with in previous uh, Episodes, And in, in London, of course, naturally, this, uh, this mood of disaffection, given the, the, the prevailing culture, inevitably expressed itself in, in religious terms. After uh, more than a decade of being supp- viciously suppressed uh, under Charles and, uh, and William Lord, the Archbishop of, Can- of Canterbury, there was an explosion of movements of all sorts, religious movements, sects of all sorts sectaries they were known as separatists also because they wished to separate from the church of england and they met previously they had to meet in secret in taverns and uh, private rooms so on and so forth now they came out into the open and there was one place in particular you probably never heard of it but at the time it was quite notorious coleman street in the city of london i don't think it exists anymore we have to check that out coleman street in the city of London. Yeah. And in particular, the parish church of St. Stephen's in, in Coleman Street, that was a hive of uh, re- revolutionary and religious radicalism. All kinds of people who were there, uh, revolutionary authors, the authors of pamphlets, uh, Richard Overton, who became a, one of the leaders of the, of the, La- the Levelers had, a, had a, a secret print shop in one of the, in one of the houses in, uh, I think it was in Coleman Street, one near Coleman Street. In, from which issued a series of, of, of uh, incendiary pamphlets and leaflets, which uh, there was a flood of this stuff, a flood of this revolutionary literature. People found their voice. They'd been forced to remain silent for 11 years. And now, of course, they came out. And you couldn't talk, stop them from talking in every street corner, every marketplace, every fishwife, every street ta- uh, street vendor, every, every carpenter, every bricklayer, every boatman. Every apprentice, in particular, now the apprentices played a key role in in, in the revolution. The youth, the young people, sprang into political and religious activity. They attended huge meetings in places like uh, Saint Stephen's. Here again is uh, an account of uh, of uh, one of the uh, contemporaries. In its taverns and inns, as well as in the church itself, godly preaching could be heard by audiences reputedly numbering a hundred or more at a time. One woman, secretary, claimed a thousand. Just imagine, a prayer meeting of a thousand. When, when authors, preachers or politicians wished to, to gesture at the perils of, of, of social chaos, they only needed to utter the words Coleman Street. <laughs> it was shorthand for the revolution. It's, a, it's difficult for us to imagine the, the, the enormous uh, importance of this. The masses are moving into action big time, and the, they, they have to express themselves. The only way that they can express themselves under the circumstances in these enormous prayer meetings, which were not prayer meetings at all in the, in, in the sense that you would understand, but political agitational gatherings. The round, the Cavaliers, the Royalists, were very suspicious of these prayer meetings the uh, Earl of uh, Northumberland, that's right, complained that there were too many of these prayer meetings and that there ought to be, to quote, unquote, more prayers and less preaching, because the preaching was very often not at all, not at all about religion, or only formally about religion, but mainly about social questions, clearly of a revolutionary character. The historian, the left wing historian, Christopher Hill, uh, called uh, Coleman Street, he described it very graphically as the Faubourg Saint Antoine of the English Revolution. Now, uh, if any of you know about the French Revolution and about the Jacobins and the Saint Culottes, you will know that the uh, Faubourg Saint Antoine, that was the hive of the, the center of the radical uh, men of no shirts, the Saint Culottes in the French Revolution. And this was the equivalent. I think I agree with that. Um, with that uh, that with that description of it uh, and the authorities were beginning it to get quite alarmed at this uh, mass movement this mass protest movement which taking to the streets the direct intervention of the masses changed everything that's the main point of this particular lecture there was a veritable flood of, of pamphlets revolutionary journalism was born you know the all kinds of people Began to, to 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 find the 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 skill at writing. Even those that had been imprisoned, I'd mentioned them earlier. People like Prynne, Bastwick, and Burton, and John John Lilburn, the the, the famous leader of the, the Levellers, who were all in jail at this time. They were in prison. They'd been in prison under dreadful conditions for a long time. They were released by the revolution, one of the first acts of the Long Parliament didn't have much option in them, matter what, well, they probably wanted, wanted to do it anyway, was to order the release of these prisons. They were released. And previously, because of the fear that they were still writing their incendiary pamphlets from prison, uh, several of them had been a- a- exiled to places like uh, the Isle of Scilly, if you ever heard of that, off the far western coast of, uh, coast of England, or, or Jersey and Guernsey, and so on. They they thought they'd get them out of the way, didn't succeed. They were forced to be released. And when they did release, when when they arrived on shore, they were greeted by masses of people, thousands of people, excited crowds of people came to receive them with with shouts and exclamations. And as they approached London, Every, every every village and hamlet they passed through, so people joined in the demonstrations. So they ended up with, with a mass a mass demonstration, as they approached London. Same thing happened when when, when Lilburn was released from prison. The same thing happened, and this this colossal upsurge of of uh, of, of the mass movement of the men of no shirts was met with absolute horror by the ruling class. They saw this correctly as it happened. They saw this as nothing more, more or less than a revolution. The Earl of Clarendon, who I've mentioned, one of Charles' most trusted advisors, complained that what was, it was, in effect, a peaceful demonstration. There was no question it was a peaceful, orderly demonstration, expression of people's joy and so on and so forth. He described it as, quote, an insurrection, for it was no better, and frenzy of the people. And he was, he was quite horrified. Other, parli- other members of the ruling class thought exactly the same as Clarendon. He was a monarchist. But don't, don't worry, even s- some quite a few of the moderate opposition, the Boozer opposition, were also not too pleased about this. You see, none of them, n- n- no section of the ruling class, neither the monarchists or the parliamentarism, ever had the perspective of handing power to the people. This was not, not on the agenda. Uh, the very thought filled them with horror. And therefore of course this began to open up, began to open up divisions within the parliamentarians, a division between left and right within the actual uh, opposition themselves. And a prime element here, the religious question is never very far away, was the question of the bishops in parliament. Now we see up until now, it might strike us being odd, but up until now, the Church of England had an automatic right the the ministers of the church had an automatic right to take their seats in the house of lords and to speak and vote not just on religious matters but on all matters whether ecclesiastic or or secular and this was used of course by charles as as a fundamental uh, a way of blocking progressive or advanced or revolutionary uh, legislation coming from the lower house and therefore the bishops, to go back to the, like it's like a game of chess, chess, the bishops now became the key pieces on the, on the political uh, chess board. But the main point is that the struggles that had begun, this is the point, the struggle that began in Parliament now spilled over onto the streets. And that's a decisive change in the entire situation. The question of the bishops in particular hit a very no, a raw nerve in the population. You know, for many years, people were scandalized by the conduct of the, uh, the bishops and the clergy with the relig- religious reforms and, uh, and, and so on. And therefore, here, here was the chance of the sectaries of the religious, of the radical left, in effect. That's what they were, the radical left. The, ra- the, the religious radicals were, were the equivalent of the radical left. The pulpits, uh, the pulpits were delivered over. Somebody said, to Puritanical uh, preachers and and lecturers. Uh, here's here's our friend Hume again. Vengeance was fully taken for the long silence and constraint, which, by the authority of law, the Archbishop and the High Commission, these preachers had been, uh, been had been retained. The press freed from all fear or, 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 reserve, or reserve swarmed with with productions dangerous in their seditious zeal and calumny more than by any art of elo- eloquence or composition <laughs> yes of course and by the way they, they were very uh, slanderous i think they, they probably would be illegal under modern conditions but nevertheless and of course then it started then it started on, on every street corner and every marketplace and every town and village. The slogan echoed in people's ears: "No bishops." The same slogan that had been put forward in Scotland by the masses. And then, once this slogan put, was put forward, it, it, it spread like like wildfire. In in London, of course, in London in November this was November sixteen forty a petition. Was being drawn up by the ordinary people, by the men of no shirts, if you like, with some assistance from the middle class, for the abolition of uh, episcopacy, as it's called, of, of, of bishops altogether. It was called the root and branch petition. They wanted a root and branch change, and it was supposed to, it was supposedly signed by fifteen thousand citizens. But don't you think that this? Now this is another point. Petitions played a key role in all this agitation. Petitioners that didn't have televisions, things in those days, but they had. The petition was a powerful weapon. There, there were many petitions. There was a flood of petitions. Parliament was inundated with petitions. So many, so many petitions. were you see, they had to set up a special commission to examine them because they, there were too many of them, from, from all kinds of expression their grievances. A similar thing, by the way, occurred in the early stages of the French Revolution. But nevertheless, these petitions played a key role. And this in particular, the root and branch petition, served to galvanize and unify the, uh, the revolutionary people. But don't think that it was welcomed by uh, the friends of the people in the, in the House of Parliament. No, far, from it, from, far from it. Let's be clear about this. The moderate bourgeois opposition, you see, now we'll come to this point later, when we say this is a bourgeois revolution, so it was objectively, it was an objectively a bourgeois revolution to finish off feudalism and to modernize Britain and bring it into the age of capitalism. That's so objectively, that was the case. But you see, as we will see in, in the next few episodes, in order to succeed, the bourgeois revolution uh, had to be taken over. The bourgeoisie had to be excluded, driven out of the leadership, expelled from the leadership and replaced by more radical elements prepared to, to base themselves on the masses, on the men with no shirts. Exactly the same as in France, by the way. The French bourgeois revolution only succeeded to the degree that the, the bourgeois opposition, it was really the Girondins, in effect, the Girondists, to the degree that they were expelled, they were purged, and replaced by the Jacobins that based themselves, the middle-class elements, that based themselves on the, the masses, the Saint-Culottes, Exactly the same as in England. the the, the comparison is quite uh, is quite uh, uncanny. Yes, they weren't very happy because the people in Parliament were not very happy with this because they didn't want to go that far. They didn't really want to get rid of bishops. What they wanted to do was to do that was too, too uh, a step too far. They couldn't. Uh, Charles could never agree to that. They wanted a deal with the king. They wanted a compromise with the king. They didn't want to abolish monarchy either. They didn't want to cut the king's head off, far from it. What they were striving for is a deal, a gentleman's agreement between different elements of the property classes. Not to hand power to the people, not to overthrow by revolutionary means, the existing order. And therefore when the masses pressed their demand against the bishops, they, they balked at it. They, they were scared actually. They didn't run a direct confrontation with Charles, which was what, what would have been the, the result. And therefore, they, as usual with the parliament, with the reformers, you can call them that. As usual, they maneuvered and they intrigued and they, 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 they pulled the trick, the usual trick of delaying tactics. At that time, parliament had a different end. The parliamentarians, the bourgeois parliamentarians, parliament, parliamentarians were pressing for the, for, for the impeachment of the king's ministers, not the king, no, not the king, because the king, according to all the, the rules, could do no wrong. You couldn't impeach the king, but you could impeach his, um, his ministers. And they in particular were after one minister, which was Strafford, the Earl of Strafford, who'd uh, been disgraced by the lamentable conduct in, in uh, Scotland. They were after his blood, they were after him. And therefore, they were able to say to the masses who presented in December. They, first of all, they tried not to present the all. Then the masses turned up in Parliament okay. with the, this Hooton Brand's petition in December. They said, "Well, hang on a sec, girls and boys, please be patient." <laughs> the usual, the usual thing. What they're saying now to the uh, protesters in in America: "Be patient, be patient. You know, everything in, uh, through, through through go through the proper channels and so on." Uh, reluctantly, they waited and they waited, but. Uh, nothing happened, until eventually, I think it was in April, they eventually said, well, enough is enough. And we want to to, uh, to push things forward. Now, the Earl of Stratford, Lieutenant of Ireland and President of the Council of York, was the most powerful man in England, second only to the king. And in striking a blow against him, Parliament was striking against a blow against the monarchy itself. Daniel Defoe, the author of... Uh, Robinson Crusoe, many years later, he wrote about the period, the bishops trembled, the judges went to jail, the officers of the customs were laid hold of, hold of and the parliament began to lay their fingers on the great ones, particularly Archbishop Lord and the Earl of Strafford. That's quite a graphic and accurate uh, uh, explanation. Yes, but Charles, of course, had no intention of allowing his favourite, Stafford to be uh, impeached. And therefore, he promised, he promised actually, promised the Earl of Stafford, who wanted to go to Ireland. He said, well, for goodness goodness sake, let me go back to Ireland. I don't like the look of this. The king said, no, no, it's all right. Stay where you are, you'll be all right. He promised the Earl his protection and assured him that not a hair on his head would be touched by the parliament. Well, I don't know whether the executioner's axe ever touched a hair on his head, but it certainly severed it from his shoulders eventually. But in any case, the the motion for the impeachment was put to parliament and it was carried to to the horror of, of of king charles it was carried but all was not yet lost the bill the bill still had to get through the house of lords surely uh, uh, his lordships would stand by the king's chief advisor yes and probably the probably strafford would have been saved charles was moving all the strings to save him but by now the whole affair was taken out of their hands, it had spilt out 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 of the courtroom and into the streets. And again, in every in on every street corner, fishwives and street vendors, porters and apprentices, carpenters and housewives, everyone joined in the general clamour. And the universally raucous cry went up everywhere, calling for the execution of Stratford. That was decisive. That was decisive. The trial started and frankly it went badly didn't look too good at all. Strafford in fairness, put a quite a coherent defense, which was that how could he be guilty of treason when uh, uh, you can only be guilty of treason if you act against the king, and he wasn't acting against the king, which is perfectly true. So therefore, it looked, and people were following this. You see, that's the point. The masses now were following all these things like hawks, carefully. And therefore, uh, when it, when it looked as if the king was going to Pull it, pull it, pull it, off, and, uh, and rescue his uh, his friend. Then, of course, they intervened uh, quite uh, quite decisively, uh, fearing that he might be let off. They began to mobilize, and by God, did they, they mobilize? The religious radicals got up a petition, which was signed by between twenty and thirty thousand people. This is a colossal amount of people, and. Uh, large crowds of of angry people you just imagine the scenes large crowd you to imagine what what london was like at this time it was like a, a, a seething mass of, of of revolutionary people large crowds of angry people gathered around the, the, the king's palace at at at, at, at white never went about parliament they gathered around the houses of, of, of lords i'll deal with that in a minute but they even went to the king's palace yelling justice justice and hurling dreadful threats and curses. Radical preachers addressed huge audiences from their pulpits, loudly demanding the punishment, the punishing of offenders, hurling curses against those iniquitous magistrates who allow great men to evade the punishment for their crimes. What a pity we don't have that in Britain at the present time. I think one or two people would be dealt with quite, uh, quite well. Our friend Hume decides the scene, with your permission I'll quote again, after popular violence, popular violence, of course, is always the same story. After popular violence had prevailed over the lords, the same battery was next applied to force the king's assent. The populace flocked about White, Whitehall and accompanied the demand of justice with, a loud, with the loudest clamors and most open menaces. On the 10th of April, the king ordered the mayor of London, who, by the way, was still the, 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 the lord mayor and his gang, were, were in favor of the king. They were. Not with the, not not really representative of the people of London at all. On the 10th of April, Charles ordered the Lord Mayor to put a stop to this uh, this, fruit of this petition, but he failed. They just ignored him, and eventually, under the pressure of the mass movement, uh, Pym, who was quite a smart uh, maneuverer himself, uh, rushed through the Commons a bill of attainder. He got round the trial. The trial was going badly, so he just sidestepped it. He passed it. He moved in, in rush to the Commons a bill of attainder, which was enacted on the tenth of May, and this took the whole thing out of the hands of the court. Uh, the, the bill charged Stafford with the, the offence of his heinous crimes, and that he should suffer in effect the death penalty. And the bill was passed by a vote of thirty-five to seven. Now here is an interesting point. Out of the 80 members who would be present at the t- trial of Ostrander, uh, out of 80 of them, only 36 were present when the vote was finally taken in the House of Lords. Now, why was this? Why was this? They were absent. Why were they absent? Well, here's an explanation. I've got it here. Uh, by one MP it was Arthur Arthur Kappel, MP for Hertfordshire. And one of the wealthiest landowners in England, who later regretted giving his vote against Stratford and confessed that he had done it out of a base fear of a prevailing party. The prevailing party was the opposition of, of Pym and, of course, the masses. And by God, did they move into action? They're quite inventive, also. You know what they did? They drew up a list of 39 MPs that voted against the act of uh, the attainder. Uh, and this is what they did with it. Here's a quote. At the exchange and in many places in London and Westminster, including the doors of Parliament itself, placards were pasted up bearing the, the legend, the slogan, enemies of justice and Straffordians containing a list of of names of the MPs who voted against the attainder, uh, who to save a traitor would betray their their country, and concluding with the demand that these and all other enemies of the Commonwealth should perish with Stratford. Get a load of that. And and, and, and they they meant it. They meant it. Those members, uh, by the way, were were subsequently subjected to uh, abuse in the streets. They were attacked and so on. And of course, they dare not go to Parliament. That's simple. And this became quite a common occurrence. The masses turned up, barricaded uh, the, the House of Lords in effect, and uh, stopped physically, prevented the, the, these people from attending. In the middle of all this, there's a little pathetic uh, episode that uh, Strafford himself, sensing that uh, his neck was at stake, he sent a, a long letter to his friend, bosom pal, friend and defender, the man who said that not a hair on his head would be uh, touched by Parliament, a long letter, strange letter, in which he said that he was such a loyal servant of the king, he's of course prepared to give his life to save the king, if that was in the king's interest, if that's what Charles wanted, then so be it, and ending with the, 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 the words, God long preserve your majesty. Now, personally, I don't believe a word of this. I think that that was a bit of theatre. That Strafford might have been serious. Might have, I don't think I've reason to believe not. As we shall see, but uh, I, I think that, I think what he was saying for Christ's sake, get me out of this. You promised. You better deliver, right? Okay, a bit of theatre, you know. But uh, uh, putting Charles on the spot by uh, morally putting him on the spot by these uh, by these means. Yeah, but um, Charles, of course, was inclined to save Stafford, but not at any price. The masses were beginning to rally, not just around Parliament and the House of Lords, but they were beginning to to rally around the Royal Palace. And their angry slogans, and by God, they were angry slogans, could be heard by the Queen, who was quite alarmed, by the way. And the King himself, he was seriously rattled quite clearly. Here's a a quote from somebody, from a, a contemporary, on Sunday the 8th of May, the king was in an agony of indecision. The bill remained. The, the, the bill of, 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 of retainer was now in his hands. He had to sign it. What, what's he to do? To sign or not to sign? Unless he signs, it can't be carried out. An observer says, God knows the king is much dejected. You've got a lot to be dejected about. Carry on the quote. He passed the night in great anguish, the city being full of confusion and entirely under arms. The people were armed. They were they were arming themselves for an insurrection. That's what it boils down to. The next day it was urged upon the king that no other expedient could be found to appease to appease the enraged people, and that the consequences of a furious uh, and the consequences of a furious multitude would be very terrible. Goes on. All day long nothing nothing uh, nothing sounded in the in the king's ears, but fears. Terrors and threatenings of worse and worse, the noise of drums and trumpets were imagined to be heard, and or, or rebelling people from every corner of the kingdom. Yea, apprentices, apprentices, you see, yea, apprentices, cobblers, and fruiterers presented themselves as already running into the king's bedroom, bedchamber rather. The king was so laid at and so frightened with these bugbears that if justice were, were not to be done and the bill, uh, and the bill passed for for the earth of Stafford ex- execution. the multitude would come the next day and pull down Whitehall that's the palace and God knows what might become of the king himself. It goes on in London. most of the city made a count to made a count, prepared in other words made a count to go up again and would have and would have all our shops shut up in other words, a general strike would have had all our shops shut up, and all everyone to go up to Westminster with weapons for to have justice executed on this traitor, the Earl of Strafford, But they were persuaded to wait at home until the king gave his answer, which he did. The, the, the queen seemed to have uh, appealed to him. He was obviously terrified out of our wits. And he signed. He signed away the life of his bosom friend and his trusted advisor. Uh, the man who he said you uh, wouldn't allow them to t- touch your hair of your head, he signed, signed his life away. He was so ashamed he didn't go to see the man himself. He never he didn't even go to see Strafford in his death cell. Instead, he sent his secretary, Carlton, his name was. And when Carlton walked into the cell, he noticed that the Earl seemed surprised. That's why I think that there was a bit of theater, what, the letter that he wrote. Carlton noticed that the Earl was, was seemed surprised. In a tone of despair, on hearing that the king had signed the bill, he quoted the words of the Bible, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the sons of men, for in them is no salvation. And certainly there was no salvation for Stratford, who duly kept his appointment with the the executioner's block on Tower Hill, on the 12th of March, 1641. The executioner severed his head with one blow and the news of his death was greeted with an outburst of popular rejoicing. Church bells were rung, bonfires were lit, people were dancing in the street. Yes, but this direct intervention of the masses which has brought down the most important man in the kingdom after King Charles was not welcomed by by the ruling class or by the moderates in parliament who were horrified that this, uh, this was taking place under, under their noses. And this is the fundamental feature of the revolution which we will expand upon next time, leading to a direct intervention, a, a real inter- insurrection in London, which was the, the, the prelude to civil war. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider or visit our website at www.socialist.net and if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.